Episode 17 of War in the Book of Mormon, Part 4.2, Lamanites to Anti-Nephi-Lehi's, Challenges of Conversion. Welcome to War in the Book of Mormon. I am Brian Steed, and in this episode we will discuss the changing of societies through the most effective tool for achieving change, teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. The stories in this episode are some of the best known and most regularly shared from the Book of Mormon. Some of the connections to war are obvious, some are less so. I also hope to discuss some of the details of the stories regardless of connection to conflict, simply because I love them. I want to inform you that all opinions and suppositions expressed in what follows are entirely mine and in no way reflect the positions, opinions, or policies of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I shared the following scripture quote in the last episode, but it is the reason for the missionary journey of the sons of Mosiah too, and therefore should be shared again here. I quote from Mosiah chapter 28, verse 2, that perhaps they might bring them to the knowledge of the Lord their God and convince them of the iniquity of their fathers, and that perhaps they might cure them of their hatred toward the Nephites, that they might also be brought to rejoice in the Lord their God, that they might become friendly to one another, and that there should be no more contentions in all the land which the Lord their God had given them." Aaron, the son of Mosiah too, was heir to the Nephite throne, and a man raised by a king to be a king. He and his brothers had great influence over the people, as demonstrated by their ability to sway them away from, and then toward, the Church of Christ, before and after their personal conversions, respectively. They had a tremendous rebirth and strength of conviction of the truth of their beliefs, and they wanted to share their joy with others. They also knew that acceptance of, and adherence to, the gospel of Jesus Christ provided the greatest opportunity to bring personal and societal peace to the Lamanites and the Nephites. They began and continued their missionary efforts with both a spiritual and political purpose. I will begin with a brief historical synopsis of events before going into greater depth on the conflict aspects of this portion of the Book of Mormon record. The time period covered is very similar to the previous episode, from 92 to 77 BC. The link between missionary work and conflict is typically not commented on, and the societal dynamics represented by this transformation left moot. Despite the general silence about these aspects of the story, they are important and worthy of comment. There is much in this journey that can be revealed about the military aspects of the Book of Mormon peoples. To stay abreast of this story, I recommend that you read Mosiah chapter 28 and Alma chapters 17 to 27. History Aaron, Ammon II, Omner, and Himni approached their father in concert with others to go and preach the gospel to their enemies, the Lamanites. I want to briefly digress and admit that I have been violating my own naming conventions in that previous episodes I have referred to Ammon too as Ammon, 
My excuse for this error is that he is the best known Ammon in the Book of Mormon. I will try to do better as I go forward. Back to the story. Mosiah too did not initially agree to letting his sons and their associates go on this missionary journey, but later, after continued petitions and revelation from God, as expressed in Mosiah chapter 28, verse 7, he relented and allowed the expedition to begin. It might be worthy of note to remember that Mosiah too, in letting his sons go on this missionary journey, never again saw his sons as he died before they returned. Kind of somber when you think about it. The brethren traveled through the wilderness, lying between the lands of Zarahemla and Nephi, and arrived at a point of separation. It is unclear how many directions the group separated, though we know it was at least three, and probably a minimum of four. The record discusses primarily the efforts of Ammon II and his older brother Aaron. Ammon too traveled to the land of Ishmael, and there he was taken prisoner, became a servant, rescued the flocks of King Lamoni, and taught the king the gospel. His teaching and the conversion of the king, queen, and the royal household led to general missionary success throughout the land of Ishmael. Ammon too was directed by the Lord to go to the land of Madoni to rescue his brethren, who had been placed in prison there. Lamoni accompanied Ammon too, and on the way to Madoni, they met and had an altercation with Lamoni's father, the king of all the Lamanites. The king opposed Ammon too and the association between his son and the Nephite. After Ammon too defeated him in personal combat, the king granted Ammon too and Lamoni to continue. Ammon too and Lamoni continued to Madoni, and Lamoni's pleas with the king of the land gained the freedom of the Nephite prisoners. The missionary efforts continued in the various lands with significant, though not universal, or even a majority, conversion. It is uncertain, though proposed here, that following the personal defeat at the hands of a Nephite, the king of all the Lamanites conducted two major attacks on the Nephite people in Zarahemla. The first attack joined with the defeated Amlicites, and the second occurred within the same year as the first. The attacks were both defeated, and the king was shamed and humbled. This humbling made him teachable when Aaron arrived. Aaron journeyed to the capital city to teach the king and found him brooding or pondering the words of Ammon too. The king was converted and created a series of laws or decrees allowing for the spreading of the gospel message throughout his domain. Those who were converted eventually covenanted to cease all violent efforts and buried their weapons as a sign of their conviction. They took a new name, Anti-Nephi-Lehi's. This new group became the subject of attacks resulting in hundreds and possibly thousands of deaths. They refused to defend themselves. In response to the passive acceptance of their fate, the Lamanite attackers turned their anger onto the Nephites, and they destroyed the city of Ammonihah and took captives from the land of Noah. The army was followed, attacked, and defeated by Zoram II and his army. 
The attacks on the anti-Nephi Lehi's continued and eventually they petitioned the Nephite government to allow them to immigrate to Nephite lands. They received permission and were given the land of Jershon with Nephite defenders. They were attacked again and a great battle occurred in the wilderness as a result. The people took on the new name as the people of Ammon and were moved to the land of Melech where they remained until detail of their presence ends. Lamanite Governance The sons of Mosiah too arrived to find a land of a loose tribal confederacy with a generally accepted king or ruler. This was a ruler with a common language among the elite and a greater bureaucratic control as a result of the teachings of Amulon and the priests of Noah that we discussed in episode 14 or part 3.4 of our series. When Ammon II arrived in the land of Ishmael, we believe that it was 92 or 91 BC. Remember that Alma and his people left the land of Helam somewhere around 120 BC. The interaction initiated by Amulon and the priests of Noah began at about 121 or 120 BC. So we are talking about a 30-year time span between the beginning of teaching the Lamanites the spoken and written Nephite language and the arrival of this missionary effort. The Lamanites were changing since the beginning of their interactions with the Xenophites, which began around 200 BC, or more than 100 years before Ammon II's arrival. Some of what happened was discussed in part 3 of this podcast, but other aspects remain opaque to the Book of Mormon reader. Regardless of what changes did or did not happen, the Lamanite kings in the land of Nephi were not like kings of the late Middle Ages or Roman emperors or magistrates. This was still a tribal-based society, and the use of the word king needs to be done with extreme care. As I have previously brought up, a listener or reader of this podcast and the Book of Mormon should be aware of what images and ideas are generated with the use of certain words. King is one of those words. I will give a few examples of the power and relationships of Lamanite kings from this period to explain what the word meant from 92 to 77 BC in the Book of Mormon. Lamoni had his personal flocks regularly raided by people from within his own kingdom. This was a direct personal attack on his authority and right to rule. Lamoni did not have the right to establish independent policies or laws within his land. This was granted to him by his father only after his being defeated by Ammon II in single combat. Lamoni did not have authority outside his lands, so he needed to persuade the neighboring ruler with whom he may have had a familial relationship. The king of all the Lamanites did have authority to issue proclamations and apparently had the bureaucratic institutions to enforce at least some elements of the proclamations. With the death of the king and the ascension of his son, who took on the personal name Anti-Nephi-Lehi to the throne, the previous systems seemed to break down, either through subversion or through a regular trend of succession crises common throughout ancient societies. Anti-Nephi-Lehi endured repeated attacks on those he had protected 
and then finally turned to his father's enemies for refuge. Consider these examples. Obviously, a local Lamanite king was not all-powerful, not even close. Even the king of all the Lamanites struggled to maintain obedience to proclamations deemed important. Lamoni was flat-out challenged, such that he took out his frustrations on his servants rather than on the bullies who stole his possessions. Every ancient society had issues associated with transfers of power from one rule to the next. The weaker the central authority, the greater the crisis when one ruler died. We will next address a specific example in this story that should illuminate Lamoni's governance problems as well as other issues of value. Ammon II's Service I will come back to Ammon II's initial introduction to Lamanite culture again. It is such a useful sequence. It is expressed in Alma chapter 17, verses 20 through 25. It is worth a read. You can pause this if you want while you read it. The gist is that Ammon too was taken captive, and that the tradition was to take such Nephite captives before the king, where the king would do as he pleased with the captive. This expression in verse 20 gives a sense that this had happened before, maybe even many times, as the verses listed several possible outcomes, implying, to me at least, that these outcomes had each been done at least once in the past by this very king. Maybe it was only a poetic expression. We are told that King Lamoni was a descendant of Ishmael. We are also told that his father, and I am assuming this to be literally true and not simply a figurative truth, was also a descendant of Ishmael and not of Laman. Based on the Xenophyte era, I assumed that the kings that I labeled Laman II and Laman III were descendants of Laman. Maybe not. Or maybe there was some change in dynastic governance following the departure slash escape of the Xenophytes and the people of Alma from Lamanite control. Lamoni asked what Ammon II wanted, and the response was to dwell in the land for possibly the rest of his life. The king apparently loved this response, had Ammon II's bonds loosed, and he offered Ammon II one of his daughters for a wife. Ammon II declined the offer of matrimony, and instead offered to be a servant. Lamoni placed Ammon II as one of the servants designated to protect his flocks. The wording in chapter 17, verse 25, was that Ammon II was set among the servants, meaning one of many. I want to make a brief comment of meaning or significance. Ammon II's first offer was to be a servant to the king, rather than to marry one of his daughters. His, his inclination was to work, rather than to be given a gift. As we will see, he did not simply work, but like Joseph of Egypt, he was the best of servants. He did not accept failure as willingly as the other servants. He fought, literally, to succeed in his assigned task. Following a tremendous personal success, he did not return to the king to boast of his accomplishment and prove his worthiness, but instead he continued to fulfill his assignments. Following the completion of his tasks, he reported on his work and then waited patiently for a reply. His discipline and commitment to his task were critical to his acceptance within the land of Ishmael. 
I think Ammon too is given to us as the exemplar of technical conflict. How a single fighter conducts himself in battle in this era, and metaphorically, how a single fighter should be prepared to conduct himself or herself in the spiritual battles of each day. What can we learn from Ammon too? Ammon too served well. He did so thoroughly. He was fully committed. He sought for and achieved success because he did not accept failure. We see much of this in the beginning. He did not accept an unmerited gift. Rather, he offered to demonstrate his value before receiving something he hadn't earned. Great lessons, if you ask me. Fight at the Waters of Cebus. Personal Combat in the Book of Mormon. There are over 170 Nephite and Lamanite armed conflict events implied, named, or described in the Book of Mormon, yet there is only one instance where personal combat is described in any level of detail. We are told of personal combat with Alma II and the King of the Lamanites and Amlici at the crossing of the Sidon River, and again with Teancum and Morianton, Amalickiah, and Amaron, and again with Coriantumr and Shiz at the end of the Jaredite record. In every case, there are no details. We are just told the personal fight happened, and then the outcome of the fight, and possibly the manner in which the outcome was achieved. No details of the actual conduct of fighting. Ammon too, at the waters of Cebus, on the other hand, there is a clear description of a way a single warrior fought other warriors in both single combat and against multiple opponents. Because Mormon gives us these details, we will spend some time on the details using our common premise that the details matter. First, Mormon listed the weapons of the Nephite missionaries in Alma chapter 17 verse 7. There are two reasons that a listener should be cautious in ascribing this list to the weapons carried by common Nephite fighters going into battles. One, in describing this group and what they carried, Mormon gave a description of the weapons of nobles, and not necessarily what the common Nephite soldier might have carried into battle. Two, we are given the information that these weapons were for the purpose of acquiring food and not for combat those reasons given, it is still useful that this is the only time a reader is told what weapons were carried by a Nephite fighter, even if those weapons were primarily for hunting and carried by nobles. Let's read that verse. I quote now from Alma chapter 17, verse 7. Nevertheless, they departed out of the land of Zarahemla, and took their swords, and their spears, and their bows, and their arrows, and their slings, and this they did that they might provide food for themselves while in the wilderness. Close quote. What do we know? The Nephites each carried multiple projectile and melee weapons. It is probable, based on this list, and it can also be assumed that like Roman soldiers and others in the ancient world, each Nephite fighter was expected to engage the opponent with missile weapons, and then, after the exchange, or after the complete exhaustion of all missiles, to close in melee combat. Mormon also stated that they carried spears. This is one of the few such references to this weapon, and it is possible that this was mostly used for hunting. It is never clear from the record how this weapon was used, if used in combat. 
Was it a thrusting spear like those of the Greek hoplites and Assyrian infantry, or a hurled weapon like the pilum of the Roman army? We don't know, and the fight at the waters of Cebus doesn't make it any clearer. I'm now going to recount the story of the waters of Cebus from Alma 17, with commentary interspersed. In doing this, I want to remind you of a point of the detail present in the stories. What we have in the scriptures are not simply stories. They are divine instruction. At times, understanding the instruction requires in-depth study and reflection, reading the fine print, if you will. For this reason, I want to bring into greater relief the details in this story. Even as I do this, I want you to recognize that there is even more detail than what I am able to touch on, meaning that there is always room to learn more from scripture stories. The story as I am reading it begins in Alma chapter 17 verse 25, from which I quote, Ammon said unto him, King Lamoni, I will be thy servant. Therefore Ammon became a servant to King Lamoni, and it came to pass that he was set among other servants to watch the flocks of Lamoni, according to the custom of the Lamanites. Close quote. Note, that Ammon was not made a leader of servants, but one among them. Remember that he was a Nephite prince who could have been the king. The obvious message is that it is best to serve where called regardless of previous experience or pedigree. I continue with the quote from verses 26 to 29. And after he had been in the service of the king three days, as he was with the Lamanitish servants, going forth with their flocks to the place of water, which was called the water of Cebus, and all the Lamanites drive their flocks hither, that they may have water. Therefore, as Ammon and the servants of the king were driving forth their flocks to this place of water, behold, a certain number of the Lamanites, who had been with their flocks to water, stood and scattered the flocks of Ammon and the servants of the king, and they scattered them insomuch that they fled many ways. Now the servants of the king began to murmur, saying, Now the king will slay us, as he has our brethren, because their flocks were scattered by the wickedness of these men. And they began to weep exceedingly, saying, Behold, our flocks are scattered already. Now they wept because of the fear of being slain. Close quote. Ammon too, along with other servants of the king, who are called Lamanitish servants, I hope the use of the word Lamanitish takes you back many episodes to our discussion on that word in episode 10. Based on how Ammon too was given the task at hand, taking the flocks to water, one might be safe to assume that the Lamanitish servants were not descended either from Laman or from the sons of Ishmael, as Mormon already told the reader that they were all lumped as Lamanites. These people must have had some other lineage, but an appearance or culture similar enough to say Ish. This is not just a story. This really happened. This is real danger. This is real catastrophe. There are people around the world that face this sort of danger every day. Their lives or livelihood are threatened for being Christian or for being a supporter of an opposition party. If they are discovered, they could be imprisoned 
or executed. I don't know that anyone listening to this podcast faces these dangers, though I want to emphasize that I personally know people who have faced these dangers in the 21st century. They are real and they exist. For all the rest of us, let's put this in a context that may resonate. You might have a serious illness or a friend or relative who had one, and by some action on your part or their part, the insurance coverage was threatened. The costs of treatment became unbearable, and you were faced with a decision between paying bills and your or your loved one's health. Or maybe you had a lapse in judgment. You copied someone else's test answer or paper. You were overwhelmed and you thought no one would notice. Or you borrowed something very expensive from a friend. Or you were entrusted with that item at work and you just realized that you lost it. Imagine those crushing emotions of despair, of lack of control, of being at the whim of powerful and malevolent forces. It was these emotions that the servants of the king were feeling. I continue quoting from verses 29 and 30. Now when Ammon saw this, his heart was swollen within him with joy. For, said he, I will show forth my power unto these my fellow servants, or the power which is in me in restoring these flocks unto the king, that I may win the hearts of these my fellow servants, that I may lead them to believe in my words. And now, these were the thoughts of Ammon when he saw the afflictions of those whom he termed to be his brethren. Close quote. I want to emphasize that here Mormon is recording the thoughts of the actor. How did he know this? I expect that he had access to Amantu's missionary journal or some conference address where Amantu recounted his thoughts. I point this out to express the importance of recording thoughts and actions for posterity. Who knows who may benefit? Back to the story itself. Why would Amantu rejoice in such a moment? It seems almost perverse to joy in the suffering of others. Of course, that is not what was happening here. The part where we are told that his heart was swollen is a great way of describing the influence of the Holy Ghost. Ammon too was being instructed to demonstrate the power of God. He saw opportunity to be a servant in the hand of God because he saw the receptiveness of his fellow servants in their extremity they may be willing to listen and to see. I want you to pay attention to what he says next. I suggest that this quote could be said by every quorum leader, every Relief Society president, every parent to communicate the purpose of our service and ministry. I quote from verse 31, My brethren, be of good cheer, and let us go in search of the flocks, and we will gather them together and bring them back unto the place of water, and thus we will preserve the flocks unto the king, and he will not slay us. This is ministry. This is the purpose of the priesthood power on earth. It is our job to bring the scattered flocks back to a place of living water. Each week, in what members of the Church of Jesus Christ call sacrament meeting, 
we partake of living water in remembrance of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The water of baptism, the water of the sacrament cup, the water of washing, are all symbols of the living water provided and represented by Jesus Christ and his gospel. In bringing people back to this water regularly, we ensure for ourselves eternal life in the mansions of the King of Kings, that we might not be slain. Continuing the quote with verses 32 through 34. And it came to pass that they went in search of the flocks, and they did follow Ammon, and they rushed forth with much swiftness, and did head the flocks of the king, and did gather them together again to the place of water. And those men again stood to scatter their flocks. But Ammon said unto his brethren, Encircle the flocks round about that they flee not, and I go and contend with these men who do scatter our flocks. Therefore they did as Ammon commanded them, And he went forth and stood to contend with those who stood by the waters of Sebus, and they were in number not a few. They rushed with much swiftness. When called to action, we need to respond in this immediacy. Once we find the scattered members of the flock, we need to encircle them in love and protection. Then we let the leaders contend, if contention is needed at all. Our job as members is to protect the flock. We do so by encircling them, surrounding them, not smothering them. This, in part, is why we have councils. It allows us to surround problems, to encircle and protect families in need by bringing all of the resources of a ward, class, or quorum into the discussion. Quoting verse 35, Therefore they, meaning the Lamanites, did not fear Ammon, For they supposed that one of their men could slay him according to their pleasure. For they knew not that the Lord had promised Mosiah that he would deliver his sons out of their hands. Neither did they know anything concerning the Lord. Therefore they delighted in the destruction of their brethren. And for this cause they stood to scatter the flocks of the king. Most people oppose the Lord out of ignorance. Do not be quick to ascribe to the intentions and actions of an opponent malevolence when ignorance is typically the answer. Better to assume ignorance and love them to the truth than assume malice and reinforce animosity. Quoting verses 36 through 38. But Ammon stood forth and began to cast stones at them with his sling. Yea, with mighty power he did sling stones amongst them. And thus he slew a certain number of them, insomuch that they began to be astonished at his power. Nevertheless, they were angry because of the slain of their brethren, and they were determined that he should fall. Therefore, seeing that they could not hit him with their stones, they came forth with clubs to slay him. But behold, every man that lifted his club to smite Ammon, He smote off their arms with his sword, for he did withstand their blows by smiting their arms with the edge of his sword, insomuch that they began to be astonished, and began to flee before him. Yea, and they were not few in number, and he caused them to flee by the strength of his arm. Now six of them had fallen by the sling, but he slew none save it were their leader with his sword. And he smote off as many of their arms as were lifted against him, and they were not a few. 
Ammon too fought against those posing a danger to the flock in the power of God because that is what purity granted him. Note that he was proficient in multiple weapons. This is an important point. The Lord does not give us this detail for some action-adventure thrill. He is teaching us. What is he teaching? I believe that he is teaching us the importance of being proficient with a variety of tools and in a variety of means of service. It is not enough to be good at raking leaves, cleaning gutters, and painting. We need to be able to serve physically and temporally, but also spiritually. We cannot index our way to the celestial kingdom, nor can we reach there simply by feeding the missionaries or serving at girls' camp or any gospel hobbyist approach. We need to have multiple weapons as part of our whole armor of God. All of the great fighters or battles in the Book of Mormon include some detail of weapons of every kind. I think it is to remind us of the importance of developing multiple skills in serving the Lord. To go back to the point of encircling, it is also about bringing multiple tools from multiple people to minister to a problem. Verse 39 goes as follows, and I quote, And when he had driven them afar off, he returned, and they watered their flocks, and returned them to the pasture of the king, and then went in unto the king, bearing the arms which had been smitten off by the sword of Ammon, of those who sought to slay him. And they were carried in unto the king for a testimony of the things which they had done. This is our goal, to water our flock on the living water provided through the ordinances and covenants of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then to return that flock through those same ordinances and covenants to the pasture of the eternal King and Father of us all. The final point is that of accountability. We must return and report. I want to specifically emphasize the combat of this story now. Ammon was faced by a group of opponents of not less than nine and probably not greater than twenty. As he stood alone to oppose the will of the group, they appeared to attack him singly. If there were twelve or more men, they could easily have rushed a single opponent and overpowered him despite casualties to some or even many of their number. It is also likely that if they had all hurled stones or javelins or fired arrows, one of the projectiles would probably have struck the single opponent and weakened him. This was not the case. The Lamanite attackers remained at a distance as Ammon too engaged them with sling stones. And then there was a melee where Mormon gives the impression that the Lamanites attacked one at a time. Though this may give room for criticism of a movie or television program, this was common among ancient cultures and common into modern times among nomadic tribes. The single combat was viewed as a matter of honor. One champion would face and fight the other to determine the greatest warrior. This was common as the prelude for many Arab intertribal battles during Muhammad's life as an example. One warrior would come forward and the other side would send a warrior to face them, one at a time until the champion was killed or the willing participants exhausted. After the battle of champions, the battle of armies commenced. It appears 
that something like this is what occurred at the waters of Cebus. Despite the fact that this seems to be a battle of champions until all Lamanite opponents were exhausted, there are still critical indicators of general warrior behavior. Meaning that we might be able to extrapolate from this heroic engagement dealing with protecting a flock to other battles only hinted at in the record. Here are the steps. Step 1. Possibly a contest of champions. Sometimes this seems to be emphasized and other times it may never have happened. The contest of champions and the main battle probably followed the next steps of the pattern. Step 2. An exchange of missiles. This exchange continued until the supply of missiles was exhausted. Step 3. Following the completion of the missile exchange, the two sides approached, probably in a charge, and then the melee began. Lamoni, a type of Lamanite culture. There are a lot of Lamanites mentioned, and to a degree, described in the Book of Mormon record. Despite this, we know relatively little about the overall Lamanite culture. I think that Lamoni and his father serve as the Lamanite archetypes. If that is true, what do we learn about the Lamanites from Lamoni's character and behavior? Lamoni was proud. He wanted to have a Nephite link, a semi-prisoner slash advisor. He was grandiose in his gifts. He offered his daughter to this stranger. He liked the idea of having a Nephite servant. It would make him look powerful to all of his peer rulers, especially in light of the fact that there was a major gathering of Lamanite rulers only a few days away. He was willing to sacrifice the Nephite, and may have even been setting Ammon II up as he sent him on a task where servants had failed previously and been executed for this failure. If Lamoni could execute a Nephite for failure in a simple task, it might have given him an even greater air of power and authority among his own people. Remember that those scattering his flocks were from Lamoni's own people. He probably had good reason for needing to express dominance. Once Ammon II demonstrated tremendous ability, Lamoni was forced to reassess his opinions and even his entire worldview. Lamoni was the son of a king, and he was used to the rumors of Nephite invincibility. He had never faced a Nephite in battle, and had probably only seen the descendants of dissenters with mixed heritage, as most dissenters probably intermarried with Lamanites within a generation. What he knew of Nephites was probably rumor, conjecture, and myth. Ammon II's faithful service and heroic actions at the waters of Cebus probably called all of this into question. Lamona was humbled, and as such, he was teachable. Mormon gives more information on the Lamanite personality in this story than any other. We see a culture of hospitality, generosity, superstition, pride, intrigue, ignorance of the broader world, and honor in keeping their word. This is important throughout the record, as has been shown with the Xenophytes and will be demonstrated later. Even among most of the Nephite dissenters, these Lamanite cultural attributes seem to hold true and probably were common among Nephites as well, though rarely do we get insight 
into an average Nephite. The king of the Lamanites needed humbling and was converted. Like his son, the king of the Lamanites went through a similar process. He tried to kill Ammon too and was defeated. He returned to his capital, where it appears he waged two battles with the Nephites, both times seeking to destroy the city of Zarahemla. The first attack was defeated by Alma II and his Nephite army, as explained in detail in our next episode. Then he returned to his lands, having suffered a battlefield defeat and a rout of his army as they fled from the battlefield to the wilderness of her mounts, being pursued all the way. This was not simple defeat, but humiliation. The nature of the king's character was revealed as he was unwilling to accept defeat that he nearly immediately returned and raised another army and attacked within the same year. This was reckless pride. Rarely were multiple campaigns mounted in the same campaigning season, and almost never with two separate armies. The composition of the armies must have reflected this pride, possibly a hastily raised first army or a force representing a smaller than normal percentage of the male population of similar size was raised so quickly. The three defeats, first personal, second humiliating, and third decisive, forced the king to reassess his perceptions and become humble. It was in this environment that Aaron arrived in the capital and came before the king. I want to make a brief statement about timeline here. As I already mentioned, Ammon too and his brethren arrive in the land of Nephi somewhere in year 92 or 91 BC. The battle around the crossing of the Sidon River, where Alma too will defeat the king of the Lamanites and Amlici, takes place in 87 BC, or the fifth year of the reign of the judges. That means a story that is rather compressed in the Book of Mormon record, where the king of the Lamanites is defeated by Ammon too, and then Aaron shows up and teaches him, may not have in fact happened within a matter of weeks or months, but may have in fact taken years for all of those events to transpire. I will explain a little bit more about this reasoning in a moment. The three defeats first personal, second humiliating, and third decisive, forced the king to reassess his perceptions and become humble. It was in this environment that Aaron arrived in the capital and came before the king. The supposition of the king of the Lamanites defeated by Ammon too, and taught by Aaron being the same person who is defeated by Alma too, and defeated again in the south of Nephite lands, seems clear as the king maintained control of his people throughout his reign, regardless of his conversion and the laws he sent forth. It was not until after his death that the attacks and murder of the converted began. It is improbable to me that a major invasion of Nephite land would occur without the king's knowledge and agreement. It is equally unlikely that the king would order or allow such an attack after his own conversion and covenant, though it is not specified that he personally made the covenant not to kill again. 
In his humbled condition, the king was willing to accept the instruction from Aaron, and he made the offer to give away all his sins and offered his kingdom to the former heir to the Nephite throne in Alma chapter 2, verses 15 and 18. The king converted and became a major proponent for freedom of religion and more freedom in general within the Lamanite realms. Dying for a Cause Those who did convert and covenant displayed a powerful sense of commitment to an oath, which was mentioned previously as part of Lamanite culture. The covenanted people, who later took on the name Anti-Nephi-Lehi, willingly allowed their opponents to kill and butcher them as they prostrated themselves before them, as recorded in Alma chapter 24. The use of the word butcher is important as ancient battles involved butchery. The weapons were similar or even the same as those used to kill, slaughter, and butcher animals, and the manner of the killing was much the same as well. Portrayals of the slaughter of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's as anything less than a display of superhuman discipline and miraculous personal control is inaccurate. It is very understandable how such a display could awe their opponents to the point of conversion or enrage them to the point of berserk fury. The need for prayer during this process was essential. How else could one of the prostrate people block out the screams and sounds of death around him or her without the protection of communication with God? Destruction of Ammonihah The passion associated with slaughtering their own people so infuriated those who did not convert that the Lamanite warriors sought immediate satiation of their intense emotions. They moved with speed and arrived without warning at the city of Ammonihah and completely destroyed it. There are numerous stories in the ancient and medieval world about the slaughters that occurred following an especially difficult battle or long siege or the suffering of significant casualties. Many military historians talk about this as a cathartic release demonstrated through mindless killing and rage. Based on the information in the Book of Mormon, what happened in Ammonihah may have fallen into such a category. The Lamanites probably felt similar to the Christian Crusaders or the Babylonians as they finally broke through into Jerusalem and then commenced to destroy lives, property, virtue, and all else they could touch. The bloodletting in Ammonihah was intense in its fury, such that the wealth captured from the city was insufficient to satisfy the attackers, and they seized captives from the nearby land of Noah. This gives strong support to Mormon's statement that no one lived in Ammonihah. If there had been survivors, they would have been the captives, and Noah would probably have been left alone. It also is support for the immediate circumstances leading to the attack of Ammonihah and following it. The Lamanite army was not a large army, but a war band, expunging their bloodlust and not out for thoughtful plundering. Only after the slaughter did they seem to consider the taking of hostages, and therefore the afterthought of attacking the land of Noah. The attacks on Ammonihah and Noah are covered in only a couple of verses in Alma chapter 16 verses 1 to 3. 
As you have probably noticed, this is an example of the time discontinuity previously mentioned. We are first told about the attacks on Ammonihah as part of the story of Alma II's proselyting and ministering efforts and not as part of the story of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. We are also told about the connection of the attacks in Alma chapter 25 verses 2 and 3. We will discuss the anti-Nephi-Lehi's and the connections associated with this violence in greater detail in episode 19 or part 4.4. Horses and Chariots I mentioned chariots in episode 6 or part 1.5 in noting the absence of a discussion of cavalry in the Book of Mormon. With respect to complex military organizations, there is a glaring deficiency in the Book of Mormon. There is a lack of horses and chariots. Within this section, Alma chapter 18 verses 9 to 12, there is one of only two different references to Nephite or Lamanite chariots in the entire record. Ammon prepared Lamoni's horses and chariots following his fighting at the waters of Sebus. It is unclear what Mormon meant by the word chariot, or why it was translated as chariot. For those thinking of the chariots from the movies like Ben-Hur or Prince of Egypt, I want to offer a broader definition. I refer again to the 1828 Webster's Dictionary that gives two definitions for the noun, and I quote, 1. A half-coach, a carriage with four wheels and one seat behind, used for conveyance and pleasure. 2. A car or vehicle used formally in war, drawn by two or more horses and conveying two men each. These vehicles were sometimes armed with hooks or sighs. I will not argue the definitions from Webster's other than to say that they are not historically accurate with respect to the possibility of construction and the use for war in the ancient world. However, this is the word as Joseph Smith might have understood it to be used. Based on this definition and the use in the Book of Mormon, and I quote from Alma chapter 18 verses 8 to 12, And it came to pass that King Lamoni inquired of his servants, saying, Where is this man that has such great power? And they said unto him, Behold, he is feeding thy horses. Now the king had commanded his servants, previous to the time of the watering of their flocks, that they should prepare his horses and chariots, and conduct him forth to the land of Nephi. For there had been a great feast appointed at the land of Nephi by the father of Lamoni, who was king over all the land. Now when King Lamoni heard that Ammon was preparing his horses and his chariots, he was more astonished because of the faithfulness of Ammon, saying, Surely there has not been any servant among all my servants that has been so faithful as this man, for even he doth remember all my commandments to execute them. Now I surely know that this is the great spirit, and I would desire him that he come in unto me, but I durst not. And it came to pass that when Ammon had made ready the horses and the chariots for the king and his servants, he went in unto the king, and he saw the countenance of the king was changed. Therefore he was about to return out of his presence. From this reference, the chariot seems to be more of a horse-drawn taxi rather than a vehicle for battle, as also described in Webster's. 
The later reference from 3 Nephi chapter 3 verse 22 gives a similar interpretation. It is possible that the horses possessed by Lamoni were not of sufficient size and strength to carry individually a rider. And it is also probable that the use of the word chariot is to denote a horse-drawn conveyance rather than the biblical use of the term as a war cart or mobile firing platform. In making suppositions of this sort, it is also possible that in Mormon's day there were no such vehicles or animals, and he was forced to use the words he was given or the biblical words with which he was familiar. By this I mean that Joseph Smith clearly understood the word as Mormon used it, and Mormon was the one that had a different view of the meaning of such a term. What does all of this mean to you? I already discussed application for the story of Ammon II at the waters of Cebus. I do want to emphasize that this story is the single greatest example of what and how one should minister to others. I want to also re-emphasize a couple of other points. 1. We need to arm ourselves with a variety of skills and abilities to minister and assist others. The more skills and metaphorical tools or weapons we have, the more effective we will be in service to others. 2. It is important that we understand how other people understand the world, their culture. One of the powerful lessons of Christianity is that each person should hear the gospel in their own tongue. Ideally, each person should also receive the gospel in a manner and way that fits within their own culture. 3. We all need to change our culture to become the culture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Regardless of how successful our earthly culture may be, it isn't the gospel culture which is always better. 4. Be humble. It is better to be humble than to be compelled to be humble. 5. Mormon shows us rather than tells us. I want to emphasize this point as my concluding point in making clear the fact that Mormon is showing us critical teachings by these stories, both the specific story at the waters of Cebus and the general story of the conversion of the Lamanites and becoming anti-Nephi-Lehi's. He shows in this story a profound sermon of gospel change and development. The next episode is a battle analysis of the battles against the Amlicites and their Lamanite allies. This episode illuminates Alma II as the archetypal warrior leader. These battles include some significant combat challenges, and Alma II excels at all of them. I invite you to reach out and ask questions and send comments to me on Facebook at War in the Book of Mormon or at warinthebookofmormon at gmail.com. All one word, warinthebookofmormon at gmail.com. Until next time.